As most of you will know, I'm trying to learn Gallic. And one of the units I studied recently was designed to give an introduction to the Gallic of Nova Scotia. Now, I have enough trouble learning the Gallic of Isla, let alone learning the Gallic spoken on the other side of the Atlantic. But I did discover something that I found interesting. On Isla, if you meet someone that you do not know, you would begin by us saying, Meiching Vey. Good morning. Kim Rahashiv, how are you? It's Misha Andra, Jane Tanimahorov. I'm Andrew, what's your name? Gallic is really polite. But then you'd ask a few questions to learn a little bit about them. Kachavir Shiva Furak, where do you stay? Kawasahashiv, where are you from? Jane Oberahakov, what job do you have? These are the basic getting to know you questions. But in Nova Scotia, after saying good morning and asking how they are, you'd ask a very different question. Rather than asking them where they were from or what job they had, you would ask, Ko Abahagoyf, who was your father? It's very forward, isn't it? If you went up to someone where I come from in England and asked them, who's your father? You get a punch in the face. <laughs> That is what they ask in Nova Scotia. And when you think of the history of that part of the world, it makes sense. Nova Scotia was originally inhabited by the indigenous people of Canada, but then the settlers arrived from the UK as the new world started to open up to them. So when they ask, who is your father? You're asking, do you descend from the native people or from the UK? And then when you think of the stories of many of those settlers, many of them were forced out of Scotland by the Highland clearances. They arrived from all the different parts of the Highlands and the Islands. So when you ask, who is your father? You're asking, what clan, what area, what people group are you a part of? Are you an Elok? Are you a Lewisuk? Are you a Mulloch? Are you from Sutherland? Are you from Caithness? But of course, there's a great assumption in this question, who was your father? And the assumption is that people grow up to be like their fathers. In English, we have a saying, don't we? Like father, like son. And I've also heard like mother, like daughter. And we know exactly what we mean by that. Children often look like their parents. They have the same nose or eyes. Children often have a similar character to their parents. I'm empathetic like my mother and an introvert like my father. It's undeniable. Children are shaped and formed by the people that bring them up. So much so, we can easily see the influence of their parents in them, be that for good or for bad. In Israel, 2,000 years ago, this relationship between parents and their children was perhaps even stronger than it is now. And in a patriarchal society as it was, the question asked when getting to know someone was very much, who is your father? Who is it that you descend from? In Israel, your inheritance and status in life depended upon your father. The work you did depended on your father. If he was a fisherman, you were a fisherman. If he was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. Your reputation 
depended on your father's reputation. And it was a sure assumption that children would grow up to be like their dads in character, nature, attitude. Kohabahagoyf, who was your father? It was a very important question in Israel, and it's the question that underlines the whole of our passage today. For a few weeks now, we've seen the Jewish leaders effectively asking that question of Jesus as they try to figure out who he is and what he's come to do. This week, we're going to see Jesus turn it round and ask it of them and prepare for fireworks because by the end of this, they're going to want to give him more than just a punch in the face. Chapters 7 and 8 of John's Gospel are the recording of a long debate, an argument that raged back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. It took place in the temple courts at festival time. And Jesus has tried to use this festival as an opportunity to explain who he is and what he's come to achieve. And over the last few weeks, we've heard Jesus say some incredible things like, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Statements like these have caused uproar. The religious leaders have decided that he's a blasphemous heretic who needs to be disposed of. But there have been a few on the edges of the crowd with open hearts and minds who wanted to find out more. Some of them have even begun to believe in him a little bit. And it's to these that Jesus now turns at the beginning of our reading. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. As Christians today, we love these words. We quote them regularly. We sing them in our songs. The truth will set you free. These words have been used in great evangelistic campaigns. They're used in counselling groups. They were used by the likes of Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement. The truth will set you free. We love these words. But to the Jews of Jesus' day, these words are a problem. A big problem. Why? Because these words point to the type of freedom that Jesus has come to bring. And it's not the type of freedom they want, nor the type of freedom that the Jews think they need. Remember the situation. The Jewish land has been overrun by the Romans. The Jewish people are living under the reign of Caesar and his puppet kings. They are oppressed by violence and taxes. Poverty is rife. Suffering is everywhere. And the Jews long to be set free. They long to have their land restored to them and their dignity returned. And all the Jews are waiting for the Messiah, the, the saviour figure sent from God who would defeat Israel's enemies and rescue the people. And as this debate has raged in the temple, some of the crowd have started to believe that Jesus might be he. But then Jesus says this. 
The truth will set you free. Pardon? Come again? No, it won't. Just walking up to a Roman soldier and telling him that he should not be there and he should treat people better is not going to make any difference at all. A war will set them free. A battle victory will set them free. A mighty uprising led by God's warrior will set them free. Rome is a violent empire. It doesn't listen to truth. It only listens to force. This is the freedom the people want. What is Jesus talking about? And then Jesus goes on to explain a little further. Verse 34. Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And suddenly it's clear. Jesus announces he has come to set the people free from sin. He's not going to storm the garrison. He's not going to amass an army. He's not going to touch Rome at all. He's come to set the people free from their slavery to sin, their slavery to evil, their slavery to death. Now, I've just explained to you why that's not the type of freedom that the Jewish people wanted. But it's also important for us to understand that neither was it the type of freedom that they thought they needed. Why? Because they were already children of Abraham. Now, I don't have time this evening to give you a complete rundown of Jewish history. I hope most of us here will know it well enough for me to give just a bit of a whistle-stop tour. After God made his amazing world, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and then everything started going wrong. From that one act, sin spread and death and destruction came with it. In no time at all, there was murder and sexual immorality and drunkenness and the people trying to create towers so high that they could climb to the top and rule as gods from them. Everything was broken. God's world was ruined. Now, God could have decided to rip everything up there and then, but wonderfully he didn't. God loved his world too much to just ditch it. So instead, he set out to rescue it. And he decided to start this work by calling a man called Abraham. And God made some incredible promises to Abraham. He would bless him and give him a large family. And that family would be God's people on earth. And through Abraham's descendants, God would bless the world and eventually restore it to how it was before it got wrecked by our sin. Now, of course, the direct descendants of Abraham are the Jewish people. They are God's chosen ones, the people of blessing, the people of God's heart. Through them would come the hope for the world. And every Jew of Jesus' day believed this, as all Jews still do today. It's what's most important to them. Being children of Father Abraham defines who they are. Now, if you already believe yourselves to be a part of God's chosen people, what slavery can you possibly need saving from? You're not owned by a slave driver. You're owned by God. And that's why the Jews reply so indignantly in verse 33. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? 
Now here is where I hope my introduction is going to help us understand this passage. In the Jewish mindset, remember, children were shaped and moulded to be like their parents. So much so, it was inevitable that they would come to resemble them, not just in looks, but in character and in action. Jesus never for one moment here challenges the physical descent of the Jews. They are biologically descended from Abraham. But he has some very big questions about their spiritual descent. Why? Because they're not acting like Abraham at all. Abraham was known as a man of radical faith. He demonstrated incredible trust in the Lord. Who can forget that moment where he lifted high the knife above his son, ready to sacrifice him, not knowing that God would stop him and provide a ram instead to sacrifice? Abraham had such faith in God, it utterly defined his actions. If God asked him to do something, he would do it. If God made him a promise, he would believe it. If God asked him to go somewhere, he would go. No actions, no questions asked. But now look at how his children, several generations later, are behaving in the temple courts with Jesus. They're not trusting God's promises. They're disowning his son. They're not believing God's words spoken to them. They're trying to find a way to kill the one who's speaking it. They're not acting as God's people of blessing. They're strangling the life of the nation with their obsession for rules and maintaining their positions of power. Remember, these are the people who just got angry because Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath. So who is their father? Is it Abraham? Well, there's precious little evidence of it. There's no family likeness here. Spiritually, they couldn't be further from him. Now remember, Jesus loves these people. He deeply loves them. He came from heaven to earth to save these people. He is a proud Jew himself, as are all of his friends. The reason he challenges the Jews so hard in this passage is because he's trying to open their eyes to the truth. The truth that will set them free. Even the family of Abraham has been infected by sin. It has passed like a virus through every branch of the family. Even the family of Abraham has been enslaved and needs rescuing. Indeed, things have got so bad, it's as if they have a different father entirely. The spiritual father shaping and molding their lives, none other than the devil himself. Verses 42 to 44 are some of the strongest words ever recorded as leaving Jesus' mouth. Let's hear them again and allow their force to sink in. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Oh, how we wince when we read those words. 
These sentences just don't fit in with that gentle Jesus, meek and mild that we so often imagine, do they? Did Jesus really declare that the people around him were children of the devil? Remember again who he is talking to. He is surrounded by a group of religious leaders. In reality, he is facing a mob. Many of them are already planning how to kill him. A party has just been sent to arrest him and only just failed to do so. The crowd in front of him are already picking up the rocks to stone him. This is no gentle discussion about theology that we're reading here. Jesus is facing an angry crowd set on lynching him and he's bravely trying to speak up to bring out their hypocrisy. He's courageously trying to open their eyes as to what is really going on. They are enslaved and they need saving. Sin and evil is wrecking their lives and it's destroying their future. And only his truth is going to set them free of that. His words, his life, his death, his resurrection. What other option did Jesus have in this moment than to try and call out the truth as starkly as he could? When you are set on murdering someone, you cannot claim to be a child of God. When you are set on making up lies to destroy a life, you cannot fall back on being a child of Abraham and hope that it will vindicate that behaviour. It was the devil's lies through the serpent that led Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. It was the devil's lies that led Cain to murder his brother Abel. Right from the beginning of history, evil has distorted human beings so badly that even good, ordinary people turn and do the unthinkable. This is reality. And it always will be until the day Jesus returns and evil and sin are removed from this world once and for all. I want to pause and I want to make sure that we are picking up exactly how this applies to our lives today. Jesus was speaking to his Jewish brothers and sisters, the children of Abraham, and telling them that they needed to be set free from sin. They thought this was unnecessary because they already considered themselves God's people. So many people today do not think that they need rescuing from sin because of their family background and where they grew up. I don't need saving. I was born in a Christian country. I don't need saving. My parents are Christian. They had me christened as a baby. I don't need saving. I went to Sunday school. I go to church on Christmas. I even attend the funerals and the weddings on Isla. I'm in. I'm okay. There's nothing for me to be set free of, they think. Jesus was also talking to very religious people, the Jewish leaders, people who prided themselves on their good works, their, their keeping of the law, their acts of charity. They didn't think they had any sins to be set free of. And so many people think the same, especially the really good people here on Isla. So many people on this island <laughs> serve charities. They donate to the food bank. They bake cakes whenever a neighbour is bereaved. It's okay, they think. I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. There's nothing for me to be set free of. I don't need a saviour. And yet every one of us, Every single one of us, when we look deep down at our lives, 
when we peer into the dark places, we know that's not the whole truth. Because as much as all of us are capable of great good, we're also capable of bad. We lie. We deceive. We twist the truth to save our face. We gossip. We slander others. We put ourselves before others. We get angry and we lash out. We do our best to pay as little tax as possible. We watch pornography in secret. We recklessly abuse the environment. We go weeks on end without even giving second thought to God. And every single one of us in this room will have a regret somewhere. A word, an action, a thought that we wish we had never done. Every single one of us has that. And the whole island may think of us as a really good person, but we know, we know deep down that sin infects our life. We know the slavery it brings. We know the times when we've done wrong, even when we so wanted to do right. At times it's as if the devil is the spiritual father of us all. And this is hard stuff. None of us like being confronted with these things. The Jews of Jesus' day certainly didn't, and neither do we ourselves. But stay with this, because there's incredibly good news on offer. The amazing truth that Jesus was revealing in the temple courts that he was that he was the one true Son of God. And if we believe in him, we can become children of God too. Through the work of Christ, his father can really become our father as well. <clears throat> Listen to these great words, almost hidden at the beginning of our passage, verses 34 to 36. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Remember what we said. Jews of the first century believed that who your father was defined who you were. If your father was a person of power and authority, you were a person of power and authority. Jesus has the right to release slaves and bring them back into the family of God because he is the Father's Son. And that's what this incredible verse at the end of our reading is all about. Once Jesus had referred to the Jewish leaders as children of the devil, this conversation was only going one way. They were going to attack. They were going to do everything they could to discredit him. They'd call him demon-possessed. They'd label him a Samaritan, one of their enemies. But Jesus turns around and he responds with dynamite. You love declaring yourselves children of Abraham. Well, hear this. Abraham looked forward to seeing me. All those promises that Abraham were given, they're fulfilled in me. I am greater than Abraham. Indeed, before Abraham was born, I am. There's no going back now. The course ahead has been set. Jesus has made the great declaration, the one that's going to get him killed. 
Jesus was on earth the same length of time after Abraham that we live after Jesus. There was 2,000 years between them. But here Jesus says, I was alive before Abraham was. And more than that, I was, I am. I'm fully God, holy, divine, one with the Father. Jesus has openly declared himself to be God. He has openly declared himself to be eternal. That's what all the signs and miracles that we've read about over the last few weeks are pointing towards. And as the Son of God, he's come to earth for one reason. To rescue sinners. To rescue you and me. To release us from our slavery. He has come to bring us out from the power of the devil and make us children of God. Jesus will win a great battle victory, but it won't be a war fought against Rome with swords and clubs. He will defeat evil by giving up his life on the cross and taking it back again three days later. He will forgive us for all of our sin, all of those regrets we just mentioned, and he'll purify us from them so God can adopt us back into his family. He's going to make a way for all people of faith to become his brothers and sisters. And when God is our one true father, we will reap the benefits of children. We'll be welcomed into his presence. We'll be able to ask for his help. And we will receive the inheritance of eternal life. We could never, ever deserve this. We could never escape sin and evil on our own. We know that. But if we put our trust in Jesus, if we take up the radical faith of Abraham, we will have a great truth to own. Whenever anyone asks us, who is your father? Koabahagoyf will be able to say to them, I am a child of God. And from now on, that defines everything about me.